CD 11. Carser surveyed the length of Lobsnicks. Looks like we just follow the trail of egg, he said. Looks like Keel has a yellow streak. It didn't get quite the laugh he'd expected. A lot of the men he'd been able to collect had a more physical sense of humour. But Carser had, in his own way, some of Vimes's qualities, only they were inverted. A certain kind of man looks up to someone who's brave enough to be really bad. Are we going to get into trouble for this, Captain? And, of course, you got those who were just along for the ride. He turned to Sergeant Nock, with Corporal Quirk lurking behind him. He fully shared Vimes's view of them, although he approached it, as it were, from the other direction. You couldn't trust either of them. But they hated Keel with that gnawing, nerve-sapping hatred that only the mediocre can really bring to bear, and that was useful. "'How do you think we're going to get into trouble, Sergeant?' he said. "'We're working for the government!' "'He's a devious devil, sir,' said Nock, as if it was a character flaw. "'Now, you lot listen to me, right?' said Carser. "'No mess-ups this time. I want Keel alive, OK, and that kid Vimes. You can do what the hell you like to the rest of them.' "'Why do you want him taken alive?' said a quiet voice behind Carser. "'I thought Snapcase wanted him dead. "'And what's the kid done that's so wrong?' Carser turned. "'To his mild surprise, the watchman behind him didn't flinch. "'What's your name, mister?' he said. "'Coats.' "'Ned's the one I told you about, sir,' said Nock urgently, "'leaning over Carser's shoulder. "'Keel gave him the push, sir, after—' "'Shut up!' said Carser, without taking his eyes off Coates. There wasn't a hint of fear there, not even a glimmer of bravado. Coates just stared back. "'Did you just come along for the ride, Coates?' he said. "'No, Captain. I don't like Keel. But Vimes is just a kid that got dragged along. What are you going to do to him?' Carser leaned forward. Coates did not lean back. "'You were a rebel, weren't you?' he said. "'Don't like to do what you're told, eh?' "'They're going to get a big drink of ginger beer!' said a voice drunk with evil delight. Carser turned and looked down at the skinny, black-clad ferret. He was somewhat battered, partly because he'd put up a fight when the watchman had tried to pry him out of his cell, and mostly because Todsy and Muffer had been waiting outside. But he'd been allowed to live. Beating something like ferret to death was, to the other two, an embarrassing and demeaning waste of fist. He certainly flinched under Carser's gaze. His whole body was a flinch. "'Did I ask you to speak, you little dog's tonker?' Carser inquired. "'No, sir.' "'Right. Remember that. It could save your life one day.' Carser turned his attention back to Ned. "'Okay, sunshine. This is the bright new dawn you wanted. You asked for it, you got it. We've just got to sweep away a few of yesterday's leftovers. By order of Lord Snapcase, your mate. And it ain't your job to ask why and who, but young Vimesy... Why, I think he's a game lad who will be a credit to the city if he's kept out of the way of bad company. Now, Nock says you're good at thinking. So now you tell me what you think Keel's going to do. Ned gave him a look that went on for slightly longer than Carser felt comfortable with. He's a defender, he said eventually. He'll be back at Watch House. He'll set a few traps, get the men tooled up and wait for you. Huh? said Carser. He doesn't like to see his men hurt, said Ned. This is not going to be his day, then, said Carser. Halfway down Cable Street was a barricade. It wasn't much. A few doors, a table or two. By the standards of the big one that was even now being turned back into unbelligerent dining room furniture, it barely existed at all. Carser's informal crew walked slowly, staring up at buildings and into the mouths of alleys. People in the street fled at their approach. Some men walk in a way that projects bad news ahead of them. Vimes crouched behind the makeshift wall and peered through a crack. They'd snatched a few crossbows from aimless soldiers on the way here, but by the look of it, Carser's men had at least fifteen between them, and they outnumbered the lilac lads two to one. If push came to shove, he'd take Carser out right now. It wasn't the way it ought to go. He wanted people to see the man hang. He wanted the city to execute him. Going back empty-handed would leave a loose end flapping. He heard the sound of sobbing from further along the barricade, it wasn't young Sam, he knew, and Nobby Nobbs had probably cried all the tears a body was capable of some time ago. It was Reg. He sat, with his back to the makeshift defence, the threadbare flag across his knees, and tears dripping off his chin. "'Reg, you ought to go!' Vimes hissed. "'You don't even have a weapon!' 
What's the good of it, eh? said Rich. You were bloody right, Sarge. Things just go round and round. You got rid of the bloody unmentionables and here they are again. What's the point, eh? This city could be such a great place, but no, oh no, the bastards always end up on top. Nothing ever bloody changes. They just take their money and mess us around. Casa had stopped twenty yards from the barricade and was watching it carefully. Where the world, Reg, murmured Vimes, counting enemies under his breath. And a big covered cart came around the corner, rocking under its load. It rolled to a halt a little way from Carcer's crew, partly because the way was blocked, but mostly, perhaps, because one of the men had walked up to the driver and aimed a crossbow at his head. "'And now the bloody bastards have won,' moaned Reg. "'Every day of the week, Reg,' said Vimes, trying to follow the movements of too many people at once. The other men were spreading out. After all, they had the firepower. He couldn't let them get behind the barricade. The man holding up Mr Dibbler, the cart driver, wasn't paying too much attention— now Vimes wished he'd put himself in the wagon. Oh, well, someone had to start the rumble. Yeah? You want to shoot something, bastards? They all stared. Carcer, too. Reg had stood up and was waving the flag back and forth, was clambering over the barricade. He held the flag like a banner of defiance. You can take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom! He screamed. Carcer's men looked at one another, puzzled by what sounded like the most badly thought-out war cry in the history of the universe. Vimes could see their lips moving as they tried to work it out. Carcer raised his crossbow, gestured to his men and said, Wrong! Reg was hit by five heavy bolts, so that he did a little dance before falling to his knees. It happened in seconds. Vimes opened his mouth to give the order to charge, and shut it when he saw Reg raise his head. In silence, using the flagpole as an aid, Reg got back to his feet. Three more arrows hit him. He looked down at his skinny chest, bristling with feathers, and took a step forward. And another. One of the crossbowmen drew his sword and ran at the stricken man and was knocked into the air by a blow from Reg that must have felt like it had come from a sledgehammer. And in the ranks of the crew there was a fight. Someone in a copper's uniform had drawn his own sword and taken out two bowmen, and the man at the cart was running back to the action. "'Get them!' Vimes yelled and leapt to the barricade. There was no plan any more. Dickens and his men poured out of the cart. There were still loaded crossbows out there, but a bow is suddenly not the weapon you want to be holding when angry swords are approaching from both directions. It'll come when you call. All plans, all futures, all politics were elsewhere. Vimes scooped up a fallen sword, and with a sword in either hand screamed wordless defiance and launched himself at the nearest enemy. The man went down, headless. He saw Snouty go down in the melee and sprang over him to catch his attacker in a windmill of blades. And then he spun around to confront Nock, who dropped his sword and ran. And Vimes ran on, not fighting but hacking, ducking strokes without seeing them, blocking attacks without ever turning his head, letting the ancient senses do their work. Someone was slicing towards young Sam. Vimes brought a sword down on the arm in true self-defence. He moved on, in the centre of a widening circle. He wasn't an enemy, he was a nemesis. And as suddenly as it had come, the beast withdrew, leaving an angry man with two swords. Carcer had retreated to the side of the street, with his men, far fewer men, with him. Colon was on his knees, throwing up. Dickens was down, and Vimes knew he was dead. Nobby was down too, but that was just because someone had kicked him hard, and he'd probably decided that staying down was best. There were a lot of Carcer's men down, more than half. Some more had fled a maniac with two swords. Some had even fled Red Shoe, who was sitting on the barricade, staring at the sheer weight of arrows in him. As he watched, his brain seemingly decided that he must be dead on this evidence, and he fell backwards. But in a few hours, his brain would be in for a surprise. No one knew why some people became natural zombies, substituting sheer stubborn willpower for blind life force, but attitude played a part. For Red Shoe, life was only just beginning. Young Sam was upright. He looked as though he'd thrown up, but he'd done well to survive his first real melee. He gave Vimes a weak smile. "'What's happening now, Sarge?' he managed, taking off his helmet and wiping his forehead. Vimes sheathed a sword and quietly slipped one of Mrs Goodbody's little friends out of his pocket. "'That depends on what happens over there,' he said, nodding towards the other end of the street. Sam obediently turned to look and fell asleep. Vimes pocketed the cosh, and saw Coates looking at him.
"'Whose side are you on, Ned?' he said. "'What do you hit the kid for?' said Ned. "'So he's out of it. "'You got anything to say? "'Not much, Sarge?' Ned grinned. "'We're all learning a lot today, aren't we?' "'True enough,' said Vimes. "'There's even bigger bastards than you for a start.' "'This time Vimes grinned. "'But I try harder, Ned. "'You know Carser? "'He's a murderer. "'And just about everything else, too. "'A stone-cold killer with brains.' Is this going to go the distance? Yep, it's got to. We've got to stop this, Ned. This is the only chance. It stops here or not at all. Can you imagine him loose, now he's paddy with Snapcase? Yes, I can, said Ned. Just as well I wasn't planning anything this evening, eh? But you can tell me one thing, Sarge. How do you know all this? Vimes hesitated. But at a time like this, what difference did it make? "'I'm from this city,' said Vimes. "'But, oh, there was a hole in time, something like that. "'You want to know? I travelled here in time, Ned, and that's the truth.' "'Ned Coates looked him up and down. "'Blood covered Vimes's armour and his hands and half his face, "'and he was holding a bloody sword in his hand. "'From our far back,' he said. "'Time stopped.' Coats froze and faded in colour into a world made up of shades of grey. "'Nearly there, Your Grace,' said Sweeper behind Vimes. "'Ye gods!' yelled Vimes, flinging his sword to the ground. "'You are not making any frenzy, you know!' The sword hadn't hit the ground. It hung a few inches from his hands and had faded into greyness. "'There's just a few things we need to tell you,' said Sweeper, as if a sword in mid-air was a minor consideration. "'What's happened to the bloody sword?' said Vimes, to whom they weren't. "'Time has stopped for everyone but you,' said Sweeper patiently. "'Actually, that sentence is wrong in every particular, but it's a useful lie. "'It'll just take us a moment to set things up.' Now Vimes had time, of some kind, to look around. The whole street was darker, as if the fight had been taking place in the half-light just before dawn. The only colour was in the robes and faces of Sweeper and Q as they manoeuvred a handcart out of an alley. It held a couple of small stone columns and the body of John Keel wrapped in a shroud. "'We have some good news,' said Sweeper. "'You have?' said Vimes weakly. He walked over to the body. "'Indeed,' said Q, unshipping the stone cylinders. "'We thought we might have to persuade you to remove all your armour, but you will not, I think, need to do this.' "'That's because it will stay here,' said Lutze. "'Belongs here, see?' "'No,' said Vimes. "'I don't know what the hell you're talking about.' He touched the body. "'So cold,' he said. "'That's what I remember. He was so cold.' "'A morgue does that to people,' said Sweeper, in a matter-of-fact voice. "'Now please pay attention, Commander,' said Q. "'When we operate the—' Vimes looked up, violence in his eyes— Sweeper laid a hand on Q's arm. "'We've got things to do for a minute or two,' he said. "'Yes, but it's, it's vital that he knows how to—' "'We've got things to do for a minute or two,' Sweeper repeated, making a face. "'Oh, what? Oh, yes, uh, we've got, um, things to do. Um, things to do, uh, things.' They wandered away. Out of the corner of his eye, Vimes saw them walking back and forth across the street, as if taking measurements. He looked back at John Keel. But what could you say? Sorry you're dead? Keel had originally died on a barricade, not in a street fight. But he was just as dead all the same. Vimes was hazy on religion. He attended watch funerals and went to such religious events as the proper fulfilling of the office of commander entailed, but as for the rest... Well, you saw things sometimes that made it impossible to believe not only in gods but also in common humanity in your own eyes. From what he could remember, Keel had felt the same way. You got on with things. If there were any gods, you expected them to get on with things too, and didn't interrupt them while they were working. What could you say to a dead copper? What would he want said? Ah, he leaned closer. Carcer's going to bloody swing for this, he said and stood back. Behind him, Sweeper coughed theatrically. "'Ready, your grace?' he said. "'Ready enough,' said Vimes. "'We were telling you about the armour,' said Sweeper. "'It'll... 
The thing is, Commander, Q interrupted, that you and this fellow Carser and all the clothes and possessions you arrived with form an elongated trans-time anomaly, which is under considerable tension. Vimes turned and looked at Sweeper. It's... Very, very hard to move things out of the time where they belong, but it takes much less effort to move them back to where they were, Sweeper translated. Vimes carried on, staring. Everything really, really wants to stay where it should be, Sweeper tried. You're right there, said Vimes. All we do is grease our way, said Sweeper. We give a little push and it'll all snap back and away you go. Have you had anything to eat this morning? No. Shouldn't be too messy, then, said Sweeper. When Vimes looked puzzled, he went on, Undigested food. It'll stay here, you see. You mean it'll come tearing out of... No, 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 said Q quickly. You won't notice, but a nourishing meal when you get back would be a good idea. And the armour stays here, Q beamed. Yes, Your Grace, everything. Eye patch, socks, everything. Boots, too? Yes, everything. What about me drawers? Yes, those two, everything. So, I'll arrive in the nuddy? The one costume that's in fashion anywhere, said Sweeper, grinning. Then why did all my armour arrive with me when I came, said Vimes. And damn Carser had his knives, that's for sure. Q opened his mouth, but Sweeper answered faster. It takes a thousand steps to get to the top of a mountain, but one little hop will take you all the way back to the bottom, he said. Okay. Well, I suppose it makes sense, Vimes began. That isn't how it works at all, Lute say, wailed Q. No, said Sweeper, but it's another good lie. Look, Commander, we don't have a damn great thunderstorm and we don't have enough stored time. This is a field operation. It's the best we can do. We'll get you back and your prisoner, although you almost certainly won't arrive in the same place because of quantum. It's hard enough making sure you don't arrive 200 feet in the air, believe me. Pushing all your clothes as well, when they belong here, that just takes too much power. Now, are you ready? You'll need to go back to where you were standing. Get to Casa as soon as you can. You must grab him, otherwise he'll stay behind. OK, but I've changed lots of things, said Vimes. Leave that to us, said Sweeper. What about Keel? said Vimes, walking away with reluctance. Don't worry. We told you at the temple, we'll put him in your armour. He'll have died in battle. Make sure nothing happens to young Sam, said Vimes, as Q carefully prodded him into position. The little stone columns began to spin. We will. Make sure Red Shoe gets a decent burial. We will. Not too deep. He'll be wanting to come out again in a few hours. Q gave him a last prod. Goodbye, Commander. Time came back. Ned was looking at him. What happened just then, Sarge? You blurred. Uh, you only get one question, Ned, said Vimes, fighting the moment of nausea. Now, let's show Snapcase where the line's drawn, shall we? Let's finish it. They charged, the men falling in behind them. Vimes remembered in slow motion. Some of Carser's men ran at the sight of them. Some raised their hastily reclaimed weapons, and Carser stood there and grinned. Vimes headed for him, ducking and weaving through the fight. The man's expression changed as Vimes approached. Vimes was speeding up, shoulder-charging and thrusting other bodies away. Carser raised his sword and took a stance, but there was no room for finesse in the melee, and Vimes closed like a bull, knocking the sword up and grabbing Carser by the throat. "'You're nicked, my old chum,' he said, and then it all went black. He felt later on that there should have been more to it. There should have been rushing blue tunnels, or flashes, or the sun should have shot round and round the sky. Even pages tearing off a calendar and fluttering away would have been something. But it was just the blackness of the deepest sleep, followed by pain as he hit the floor. Vimes felt arms reach down and haul him to his feet. He shook them off as soon as he was upright and focused through the bleary mist on the face of Captain Carrot. "'Good to see you, sir. Oh, dear!' "'I'm fine,' croaked Vimes through a throat that felt stuffed with sand. "'Where's Carter? "'You've got a nasty cut on—' "'Really, I'm amazed,' growled Vimes. "'Now, where the hell is Carter?' "'We don't know, sir. "'You just appeared in mid-air and landed on the floor, "'in a lot of blue light, sir.' "'Ah,' muttered Vimes. "'Well, he's come back somewhere, somewhere close, probably.' "'Right, sir. I'll tell the men to—' "'No, don't,' said Vimes. 
He'll keep. After all, where's he going to go? He wasn't too sure of his legs. They felt as though they belonged to someone with a very poor sense of balance. How long was I... away, he said. Ponder Stibbons stepped forward. About half an hour, Your Grace. Uh, we have uh, hypothesised that there was some temporal disturbance which... "'coupled with the lightning stroke and a resonance in the standing wave of the library, "'caused a space-time rupture.' "'Yeah, it felt something like that,' said Vimes hurriedly. "'Half an hour, do you say?' "'Did it feel longer?' said Ponder, taking out a notebook. "'A bit,' Vimes conceded. "'Now, has anyone here got a pair of drawers? I... "'I can see your house from up here. "'That was Carser. "'He liked you to stew, to use your imagination.' And Vimes had said, where's he going to go? Captain, I want you and every man you can spare, every damn man, to get up to my house right now, understand? He said, just do it, just do it now. He turned to Ridcully. Arch-Chancellor, can you get me there faster? The watch wants medical assistance, said the Arch-Chancellor, taken aback. Please, said Vimes. Of course, but you realise you have no clothes on. Vimes gave up. People always wanted explanations. He set off, overruling the jelly in his legs, running out of the octangle and across the lawns until he reached the university's bridge of size, where he sped past Nobby and Colon, who were drawn into the wake of watchmen running to keep up. On the other side of the bridge was the garden known as the Wizard's Pleasance. Vimes ploughed through it, twigs whipping at his bare legs, and then he was out and onto the old towpath, mud splashing up over the blood. Then right and a left passed amazed bystanders, and then there was the cat's-head cobbles of Schoon Avenue under his feet, and he found the wind to accelerate a little. He didn't slow until he reached the gravel drive, and almost collapsed at the front door, hanging on to the bell-pull. There were hurrying feet, and the door was wrenched open. "'If you're not Willikins,' growled Vimes, focusing, "'there's gonna be trouble.' "'Your grace, whatever happened to you?' said the butler, pulling him into the hall. "'Nothing,' said Vimes.' Just get me a fresh uniform, nice and quietly, and don't let Sybil know. He read everything in the way the butler's face changed. What's happened to Sybil? Willikins backed away. A bear would have backed away. Don't go up there, sir. Mrs. Content says it's all rather difficult, sir. Things aren't um, happening quite right. Is the child born? No, sir. Uh, apparently not, sir. It's rather... Mrs. Content says she's trying everything, but maybe we ought to send for the doctors, sir. For a childbirth? Willikins looked down. After twenty unflappable years as butler, he was shaking now. No one deserved a confrontation with Sam Vimes at a time like this. Sorry, sir. No, snapped Vimes. Don't send for a doctor. I know a doctor, and he knows all about this sort of thing. He'd better... He ran back outside in time to see a broomstick touch down on the lawn, piloted by the Arch-Chancellor himself. "'Thought I'd better come along anyway,' said Ridcully. "'Is there anything?' Vimes swung himself onto it before the wizard could get off. "'Take me to Twinkle Street. Can you do that?' he said. "'It's important.' "'Hang on, Your Grace,' said Ridcully, and Vimes's stomach dropped into his legs as the stick climbed vertically. He made a small mental note to promote Buggy Swires and buy him the buzzard he'd always wanted.' Anyone prepared to do this every day for the good of the city couldn't be paid too much. Try my left pocket, said Ridcully, when they were well aloft. There's something there belongs to you, I believe. Nervously, well aware of what a wizard's pocket might hold, Vimes pulled out a bunch of paper flowers, a string of flags of all nations, and a silver cigar case. Landed on the bursar's head, said the Arch-Chancellor, steering around a seagull. I hope it's not damaged. It's fine, said Vimes. Thank you. Uh, I'll put it back for now, shall I? Don't seem to have any pockets on me at the moment. It found its way back, Vimes thought. We're home. And a suit of ornamental armour landed in the high-energy magic building, Ridcully went on. And I am happy to report it is... Very badly bent out of shape, said Vimes. Ridcully hesitated. He was aware of Vimes's feelings of guilt. Excessively, Your Grace. Completely bent out of shape because of... Quantum thingamies, I expect. Vimes shivered. He was still naked. Even the hated formal uniform would have helped up here. But it didn't matter either way now. Guilt and feathers and badges and feeling chilly. There were other things that mattered more and always would. 
He jumped off the stick before it had stopped, stumbled in a circle and fell against Dr. Lorne's door, hammering on it with his fists. After a while it opened a crack and a familiar voice, changed only a little with age, said, Yes. Vimes thrust the door fully open. Look at me, Dr. Lorne, he said. Lorne stared. Keel, he said. In his other hand he was holding the world's biggest syringe. Can't be. They buried John Keel, you know they did, said Vimes. He saw the huge instrument in the man's hand. What the hell were you going to do with that? Based a turkey, as a matter of fact. Look, who are you then? Because you look like... Grab all your midwifing stuff and come with me now, said Vimes. All those funny tools you said work so well. Bring them all, right now, and I'll make you the richest doctor that ever lived, said Vimes, a man wearing nothing but mud and blood. Lorne gestured weakly towards the kitchen. I'll just have to take the turkey out. Stuff the turkey. I already... Come on! The broomstick did not fly well with three on board, but it was faster than walking, and Vimes at this point knew he'd be incapable of anything else. He was out of breath and strength by the time he got home the first time. Now merely standing upright was a test of endurance. It was the broomstick or crawling. Now it lumbered out of the sky and landed unsteadily on the lawn. "'Lady upstairs, big bedroom on left,' said Vimes, pushing vaguely at the doctor. "'Midwife there, not got a clue. All the money you want, go on.' Lorne hurried off. Vimes, helped by Ridcully, followed rather more stiffly. But as they reached the door, the doctor came out walking backwards very slowly. It became apparent, as he emerged, that this was because Detritus's huge crossbow was pressed against his nose. When Vimes spoke, his voice was slightly muffled, because he was lying flat on the ground.' "'Put the bow down, Sergeant,' he managed. "'He come rushing in, Mr Vimes,' rumbled Detritus. "'That's because he's the doctor, Sergeant. Let him go upstairs. That is an order, thank you.' "'Right, Mr Vimes,' said Detritus, stepping aside with reluctance and shouldering the bow, at which point the bow discharged. When the thunder had died away, Vimes got up and looked around. He hadn't actually liked the shrubbery very much. That was just as well. Nothing remained but some tree trunks, and they were all stripped of bark down one side. There were a few small fires. Uh, sorry about that, Mr Vimes,' said the troll. "'What did I tell you about Mr Safety Catch?' said Vimes weakly. "'When Mr Safety Catch is not on, Mr Crossbow is not your friend,' recited Detritus, saluting. "'Sorry, sir, but we all a bit tense at this time.' "'I certainly am,' said Ridcully, picking himself off the lawn and pulling twigs out of his beard. "'I may not walk properly for the rest of the day. "'I suggest, Sergeant, that we pick the doctor up, bring him round under the pump and take him upstairs.' The things that happened next were a waking dream for Vimes. He moved like a ghost through his own house, which was full of watchmen. No one wanted to be anywhere else. He shaved himself very slowly, concentrating on every stroke. He was aware of noises off which arrived via the pink clouds in his head. He says he wants them boiled, the nasty horrid things. What's that for, to make them softer? Trolls and dwarfs on tonight, every door and window covered, and I mean covered. Stood over me and said damn well boil them for twenty minutes, like they were cabbage. Now he's asked for small brandy. Mrs. Content stormed out, and he said not to let her in again. Igor came and offered to help, and Lorne took one look and said only if he's been boiled for twenty minutes. Pox stopped her when all said and done. Old Stoneface will cover him with gold if it all turns out right. Yeah, and if it turns out wrong? Vimes got dressed in his street uniform, moving slowly and willing every limb into position. He brushed his hair. He went out into the hall. He sat down on an uncomfortable chair with his helmet on his knees, while ghosts, both living and dead, hurried around him. Usually, always, there was a part of Vimes that watched the other parts, because he was, at heart, a policeman. This time it wasn't there. It was in here with the rest of him, staring at nothing and waiting. Someone take up more towels. Now he's asked for a large brandy. He wants to see Mr Vimes. Vimes's brain lit up from whatever little pilot light of thought had been operating at the most basic level. He walked up the stairs, helmet under his arm, like a man going to take a statement. He knocked at the door. Lorne opened it. He was holding a brandy glass in his other hand and moved aside with a smile. Sybil was sitting up. He saw, through the mist of exhaustion, that she was holding something wrapped in a shawl. "'He's called Sam, Sam,' she said, "'and no argument.' The sun came out. "'I'll teach him to walk,' beamed Vimes. 
I'm good at teaching people to walk. And he fell asleep before he hit the carpet. It was a pleasant stroll in the early evening air. Vimes trailed cigar smoke behind him as he walked down to Pseudopolis Yard, where he acknowledged the cheers and congratulations and thanked people for the lovely flowers. His next stop was at Dr Lorne's house, where he sat and spoke for a while about such things as memory and how tricky it can be, and forgetfulness and how profitable it could prove. Then, with the doctor, he went to his bank. This institution was, not surprisingly, willing to open outside normal hours for a man who was a duke, and the richest man in the city, and the commander of the city watch, and, not least, quite prepared to kick the door down. There he signed over $100,000 and the freehold of a large corner site in Goosegate to one Dr J. Lorne. And then, alone, he went up to small gods. Legitimate first, whatever his private feelings, knew enough not to shut the gates on this night, and he'd filled the lamps. Vimes strolled over the moss-grown gravel. In the twilight the lilac blooms seemed to shine. Their scent hung in the air like fog. He waded through grass and reached the grave of John Keel, where he sat on the headstone, taking care not to disturb the wreaths. He had a feeling that the sergeant would understand that a copper sometimes needed to take the weight off his feet. And he finished his cigar and stared into the sunset. After a while he was aware of a scraping noise to his left and could just make out the turf starting to sag on one of the graves. A grey hand was thrust out of the ground, clutching a shovel. A few pieces of turf were pushed aside and with some effort Reg's shoe rose from the grave. He was halfway out before he noticed Vimes and nearly fell back. Oh, uh, you frighten the life out of me, Mr Vimes. Sorry, Reg. Of course, well, I say you frighten the life out of me, the zombie began gloomily. Yeah, Reg, I understand you. Quiet down there, was it? Very peaceful, sir, very peaceful. I think I'll have to get myself a new coffin before next year, though. They don't last any time at all these days. I suppose not that many people look for durability, Reg, said Vimes. Reg slowly shoveled the soil back into place. I know everyone thinks it's a bit odd, but I think I owe it to them, really, he said. It's only one day a year, but it's like solidarity. With the downtrodden masses, eh? said Vimes. What, sir? No argument for me, Reg, said Vimes happily. This was a perfect moment. Not even Reg fussing around, smoothing down the earth and patting turf into place could detract from it. There'll come a time when it'll all be clear, Sweeper had said. A perfect moment. The occupants of these graves had died for something. In the sunset glow, in the rising of the moon, in the taste of the cigar, in the warmth that comes from sheer exhaustion, Vimes saw it. History finds a way. The nature of events changed, but the nature of the dead had not. It had been a mean, shameful little fight that ended them, a fly-specked footnote of history. But they hadn't been mean or shameful men. They hadn't run, and they could have run with honour. They'd stayed, and he wondered if the path had seemed as clear to them then as it did to him now. They'd stayed, not because they wanted to be heroes, but because they chose to think of it as their job. And it was in front of them. "'I'll be off now then, sir,' said Reg, shouldering his shovel. He seemed a long way away. "'Sir?' "'Yeah, right. Right, Reg, thank you,' mumbled Vimes. And in the pink glow of the moment, watched the corporal march down the darkening path and out into the city. John Keel, Billy Wiglet, Horace Nancy Ball, Di Dickens, Cecil Snouty Clapman, Ned Coates, and, technically, Reg Shoe. Probably there were no more than twenty people in the city now who knew all the names, because there were no statues, no monuments, nothing written down anywhere. You had to have been there. He felt privileged to have been there twice. The night was welling up as the sun set. It unfolded from shadows where it had hidden from the day, and flowed and joined together. He felt his senses flow with it, spreading out like the whiskers of a dark giant cat. Beyond the gates of the cemetery the city noise died down a little, although Ankh Morpork never truly slept. It probably didn't dare. Vimes felt now, in this strange calm mood, that he could hear everything. Everything. Just as he had done back in that terrible moment in Hero Street, when history came to claim its own. He heard the tiny sounds and the stone wall as it cooled. 
the slither of dirt underground as Reggie's vacated plot settled, the faint movement of the long grass around the graves. A thousand subtle sounds added up to a richly textured, localised silence. It was the song of the dark, and in it, on the edge of detection, was a discord. Let's see. He'd put a guard on his house, and they were core people, ones he could trust not to stand around and get bored, but to remain watchful all night long. He hadn't had to explain how important that was, so the house was safe. And the watch house had double guard too. There was something wrong with Keel's grave. There was always the egg, every year, a little joke out of history. But now it looked as though there was nothing down there but bits of eggshell. As he leaned forward to look, the blade went over his head. But the beast had been ready. The beast didn't think about guards and defences. The beast didn't think at all. But it forever sniffed the air and eyed the shadows and sampled the night, and almost before the swish of the sword it had sent Vimes's hand thrusting into his pocket. Crouched, he swivelled and punched Carser on the kneecap with one of Mrs Goodbody's finest items. He heard things crackle. He'd launched himself up and forward and he bore Carser to the ground. There was no science to this. The beast was off the chain and looking to kill. It was not often that Vimes was sure that he could make the world a better place, but he was sure now. It was all very clear now. And also very hard. The sword had gone tumbling into the grass as Carser went down, but Carser fought and was tough as teak. And it is very hard with your hands to kill a man who does not want to be killed. Vimes shook off the brass knuckles because what he needed to do now was throttle. There was no room, though. Carser was trying to stick a thumb in his eye. They rolled across the graves, scrabbling and struggling for advantage. Blood filled Vimes's left eye. His rage needed just one second, and that second was being denied. He rolled again and flung out a hand. And there was the sword. He rolled again and again, and staggered up with the blade in his hand. Carser had rolled too, and was pulling himself up with remarkable speed for a man with only one good knee. Vimes saw that he was dragging himself upright by one of the lilac trees. Blossoms and scent floated down in the darkness. Metal slid. There was a momentary gleam of a knife, and a little chuckle. Carser's little laugh that said, Hey, this is all good fun, eh? So, who's going to arrest me? He said as they both gulped air. Sergeant Keel or Commander Vimes? Who said you were going to be arrested? Said Vimes, trying to fill his lungs. I'm fighting an attacker, Carser. Oh, you was, Mr Vimes, said the shadow. Only now I'm in front of you. Metal clinked on the gravel path. And I ain't armed no more. <laughs> Thrown down my last weapon. Can't kill an unarmed man, Mr Vimes. You've got to arrest me now. Drag me in front of Vetinari. Let me have my little say. <laughs> you can't kill me just standing here. No one wants to hear anything you've got to say, Carser. Then you'd better kill me, Mr Vimes. I've got no weapon. I can't run. You've always got an extra knife, Carser said Vimes, above the roar of the beast. Not this time, Mr Vimes. Come on, Mr Vimes. Can't blame a man for trying, eh? A man's got to give it his best shot, right? No hard feelings. And that was Carser. No hard feelings. His best shot. Can't blame a man for trying. Innocent words got dirty in his mouth. Vimes took a step closer. You've got a nice home to go to, Mr Vimes. I mean, what have I got? And the man was convincing. He fooled everybody. You could almost forget the corpses. Vimes glanced down. Whoops, sorry, said Carser. I walked over your grave there. No offence meant, eh? Vimes said nothing. The beast was howling. It wanted to shut that mouth up. You're not going to kill me, Mr Vimes. Not you. Not you with a badge. That ain't your way, Mr Vimes. Without looking, Vimes reached up and tore his badge off. Ah, well, I know you want to give me a fright, Mr Vimes, and many would say you've got a right. Look, here's what I'll do. I'll throw away me other knife. Ha, 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 you knew I'd got another one, right? It was the voice. It could make you think that what you knew was wrong. OK, OK, I can see you're upset. <laughs> Fair enough. And you know I've always got a third knife. Well, I'm dropping it now. See, there it goes. Vimes was only a step or two away now. That's it, Mr Vimes. No more knives. I can't run. I surrender. No messing about this time, I give in, OK? Just arrest me, for old time's sake. The beast screamed inside Vimes. It screamed that no one would blame him for doing the hangman out of ten dollars and a free breakfast. 
Yeah, and you could say a swift stab now was the merciful solution, because every hangman knew you could go the easy way or the hard way, and there wasn't one in the country that had let something like Carsa go the easy way. The gods knew the man deserved it. But young Sam was watching him across thirty years. When we break down, it all breaks down. That's just how it works. You can bend it, and if you can make it hot enough, you can bend it in a circle, but you can't break it. When you break it, it all breaks down until there's nothing unbroken. It starts here and now. He lowered the sword. Carsa looked up, grinning, and said, Never tastes right, does it? <laughs> An egg without salt? Vimes felt his hand begin to move of its own accord and stopped. Red rage froze. There was the beast all around him, and that's what it was. A beast. Useful, but still a beast. You could hold it on a chain and make it dance and juggle balls. It didn't think. It was dumb. What you were, what you were, was not the beast. You didn't have to do what it wanted. If you did, Carsa won. He dropped the sword. Carsa stared at him, the gleam of Vimes's sudden smile more worrying than the rictus of his rage. Then metal gleamed in his hand, but Vimes was already on him, grabbing the hand, slamming it again and again on John Keel's headstone until the hidden knife dropped from bleeding fingers. He dragged the man upright with both hands, forced up behind his back, and rammed him hard against the stone. "'See that up in the sky, Carsa?' he said, his mouth by the man's ear. "'That's the sunset, that is. That's the stars. And they'll shine all the better on my lad Sam tomorrow night, because they won't be shining down on you, Carsa, by reason of the fact that before the dew's off the leaves in the morning, I'll drag you in front of Veterinari, and we'll have the witnesses there, lots of them, and maybe even a lawyer for you, if there's any of them who could plead for you with a straight face, and then, Carsa, we'll take you to the Tanty, one gallows, no waiting, and you can dance the hemp fandango, and then I'll bleeding well go home, and maybe I'll even have a hard-boiled egg. You're hurting! You know, you're right there, Carsa. Vimes managed to get both the man's wrists in a steel grip and ripped the sleeve off his own shirt. I'm hurting, and I'm still doing it all by the book. He wrapped the linen round the wrists a couple of times and knotted it firmly. I'll make sure there's water in your cell, Carsa. I'll make sure you get breakfast anything you'd like. I'll make sure the hangman doesn't get sloppy and let you choke to death. I'll even make sure the trap door is greased. He released the pressure. Carsa stumbled, and Vimes kicked his legs from under him. "'The machine ain't broken, Carsa. The machine is waiting for you,' he said, tearing a sleeve off the man's own shirt and fashioning it into a crude binding for his ankles. "'The city will kill you dead. The proper wheels will turn. It'll be fair. I'll make sure of that. Afterwards, you won't be able to say you didn't have a fair trial. Won't be able to say a thing. <laughs> I'll see to that, too.' He stood back. "'Good evening, Your Grace,' said Lord Vetinari. Vimes spun around. There was a change of texture in the darkness which could have been man-shaped. Vimes snatched up his sword and peered into the night. The shape came forward, became recognisable. "'How long were you there?' he demanded. "'Oh, some little while,' said the patrician. "'Like you, I prefer to come alone and contemplate.' "'You were very quiet?' said Vimes accusingly. "'Is that a crime, Your Grace?' "'And you heard, "'A very neat arrest,' said Veterinary. "'Congratulations, Your Grace.' Vimes looked at the unblooded sword. "'I suppose so,' he said, temporarily derailed. "'On the birth of your son, I meant.' "'Oh, yeah, oh, of course. "'Yes, well, thank you.' "'A healthy lad, I am given to understand.' "'We'd have been just as happy with a daughter,' said Vimes quickly. "'Quite so. These are modern times, after all.' "'Oh, I see you have dropped your badge.' Vimes glanced at the long grass. "'I'll come and find it in the morning,' he said. "'But this,' he picked up the moaning castle and slung him over his shoulder with a grunt, "'is going back to Pseudopolis Yard right now.' They walked slowly down the gravel path, leaving the scent of lilac behind. Ahead was the everyday stink of the world. "'You know,' said Lord Vetinari after a few moments, "'it has often crossed my mind that those men deserve a proper memorial of some sort.' "'Oh, yeah,' said Vimes in a non-committal voice. His heart was still pounding. "'In one of the main squares, perhaps?' "'Yes, that would be a good idea.' "'Perhaps a 
tableau in bronze, said Vime sarcastically. All seven of them raising the flag, perhaps. Bronze, yes, said Vetinari. Really, and some sort of inspiring slogan, said Vimes. Yes, indeed. Something like, perhaps, they did the job they had to do. No, said Vimes, coming to a halt under a lamp by the crypt entrance. How dare you? How dare you? At this time, in this place, they did the job they didn't have to do, and they died doing it, and you can't give them anything. Do you understand? They fought for those who'd been abandoned. They fought for one another, and they were betrayed. Men like them always are. What good would a statue be? It'd just inspire new fools to believe they're going to be heroes. They wouldn't want that. Just let them be. Forever. They walked in heavy silence. And then Vetinari said, as if there had been no outburst, Happily, it appears that the new deacon at the temple here has suddenly heard the call. What call? I'm never very good at religious matters, but apparently he was filled with a burning desire to spread the good word to the benighted heathen, said Vetinari. Where? I suggested Ting Ling. That's right on the other side of the world. Well, a good word can't be spread too far, Sergeant. Well, at least it puts... Vimes stopped at the entrance gates. Overhead, another lamp flickered. He dropped Carcer to the ground. You knew. You bloody well knew, didn't you? Not until, oh, one second ago, said Vetinari. As one man to another, Commander, I must ask you, did you ever wonder why I wore the lilac? Yeah, I wondered, said Vimes. But you never asked. No, I never asked, said Vimes shortly. It's a flower. Anyone can wear a flower. At this time, in this place? Tell me, then. Then I'll recall the day I was sent on an urgent errand, said Vetinari. I had to save the life of a man. Not a usual errand for an assassin, although, in fact, I had already saved it once before. He gave Vimes a quizzical look. You'd shot a man who was aiming a crossbow, said Vimes. An inspired guest, Commander, yes. I have an eye for the unique. But now I was fighting time. The streets were blocked, chaos and confusion were everywhere, and it wasn't as if I even knew where he could be found. In the end I took to the rooftops, and thus I came at last to Cable Street, where there was a different sort of confusion. "'Tell me what you saw,' said Vimes. "'I saw a man called Carcer vanish, and I saw a man called John Keel die. At least I saw him dead.' "'Really?' said Vimes. I joined the fight. I snatched up a lilac bloom from a fallen man and, I have to say, held it in my mouth. I'd like to think I made some difference. I certainly killed four men, although I take no particular pride in that. They were thugs, bullies, no real skill. Besides, their leader had apparently fled, and what morale they had had gone with him. The men with the lilac, I have to say, fought like tigers. Not skilfully, I'll admit, but when they saw that their leader was down— they took the other side to pieces. Astonishing. And then afterwards I took a look at John Keel. It was John Keel. How could there be any question about that? Blood on him, of course. There was blood everywhere. His wounds looked somewhat old, I thought. And death, as we know, changes people. Yet I remember wondering, this much? So I put it down as half a mystery, and today, Sergeant, we find the other half of a mystery. It's wonderful, isn't it, how alike men can be. I can imagine that even your Sergeant Colon would not realise anything. After all, he saw Keel die, and he watched you grow up. Where is this leading? Vimes demanded. Nowhere, Commander. What could I prove? And to what end would I prove it? Then I'm saying nothing. I cannot imagine what you could say, said Vetinari. No, I agree. Let us leave the dead alone. But for you, Commander, as a little gift on the occasion of the birth of— There's nothing I want, said Vimes quickly. You can't promote me any further. There's nothing left to bribe me with. I've got more than I deserve. The watch is working well. We don't even need a new bloody dartboard. 
"'In memory of the late John Keel,' Vetinari began, "'I warned you. "'I can give you back Treacle Mine Road.' Only the high-pitched squeak of bats hunting around the poplars broke the silence that followed. Then Vimes muttered, A dragon burned it years ago. Some dwarfs live in the cellars now. Yes, Commander. But dwarfs... Well, dwarfs are so refreshingly open about money. The more money the city offers, the less dwarf there is. The stables still there, and the old mining tower. Stout stone walls all around. It could all be put back, Commander, in memory of John Keel, a man who, in a few short days, changed the lives of many and perhaps saved some sanity in a mad world. Why, in a few months, you could light the lamp over the door. Again, all that could be heard was the bats. Perhaps they could even bring back the smell, Vimes thought. Perhaps there could be a window above the privy that would spring open if you thumped it just right. Perhaps they could teach new coppers to learn old tricks. We could do with the space, it's true, he conceded with some effort. I can see you like the sound of it already, said Vetinari. And if you would care to come along to my office tomorrow, we can settle the... There's a trial tomorrow, said Vimes sharply. Ah, yes, of course. And it will be a fair one, said the patrician. It had better be, said Vimes. I want this bastard to hang after all. "'Well, then,' said Vetinari, "'afterwards we could—' "'Afterwards I'm going home to my family for a while,' said Vimes. "'Good.' "'Well said,' said Vetinari, not missing a beat. "'You have a gift, I have noticed, for impressive oratory.' And Vimes heard the gentle note of warning as he added, "'At this time, Commander, and in this place.' "'That's—' "'Sergeant at arms, thank you,' said Vimes. "'For now.' He grabbed Cass's shirt collar and dragged him to justice. On the way back to Schoon Avenue in the dark of night, Vimes walked along the alley behind Clay Lane and stopped when he reckoned he was at a point halfway between the backs of the pawn shop and the shonky shop, and therefore behind the temple. He threw his cigar stub over the fence. He heard it land on gravel, which moved a little. And then he went home and the world turned towards morning. That is the end of Night Watch. It was written by Terry Pratchett and read by Stephen Briggs. This has been an Isis Audiobooks presentation. For further details of our extensive range of unabridged books on tape and CD, please call our free phone number, which is 0800 731 5637.